Hi everyone, I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we share everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've loved our content so far and like to see more of it, please consider subscribing, liking our videos and donating on Patreon. At the end of this video, we'll also have a wonderful musical rendition of Gloria by the Libertas Choir. Today, we're talking with Eric Way Lovemore. Eric is an award-winning Gents hairstylist and celebrity courtier, and most notably has had clients like Ivana Trump and Cherie Blair, the former Prime Minister Tony Blair's wife. Currently, he is the owner and creative director of Groomed Men and Ladies, Groomed Academy, and Intelligent Hair Technology Salon. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Pietras. Thank you. Um, Eric, so we, we, we're very, very interested in terms of, you know, because I heard you come from a small town in South Africa. So, you know, going from a small town in South Africa all the way up to, you know, grooming hair of celebrities, like that's a journey that I think anybody would be interested in hearing. How exactly do you start that journey? What, what made you decide to head in this direction? Well, um, yes, I've been asked that many times. And okay. um it's uh, it's definitely been a wonderful journey, an experience which I think most people would not experience in a lifetime. Um, coming from a small little town like Stanerton, um, which is pretty much a farming community, um, I grew up there. I went to primary school there, and then I went to high school in Johannesburg. But I was the English child amongst the Afrikaans kids. Oh, really? And um, unfortunately, you know, um, there was only an English primary school in Stanerton. And then when I had to go to high school, I, uh, I had to go to Joburg because I had to continue, obviously, in an English high school. Um, and not that I, my mother was Afrikaans. So, you know, we were brought up in a dual medium household. And my sister, which is nine years older than me, she went to Afrikaans schools. So um, I think, you know, organically, I, I love that word organically. Um, I think organically, when it came to my career and where I was going to go with my life, I was exposed to city life from the age of 12. And, um, you know, things looked very different. I was not, um, you know, playing around on the, uh, playing on the farm and the tractors, like most of my friends were that stayed in Stanerton. Um, I was pretty much, you know, in the city going to shopping malls and to cinemas. Mm. And um, I came home wearing, over weekends, I would wear my Jesus sandals, as they called them. And people in the Platteland would be going, oh, my word, what are these freaky things that you're wearing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, the, the journey as a, and a career that I built as a fashion designer to start off with was a challenge to begin with. Mm. Um, when I told my parents that I wanted to go and study fashion, they were really not happy about that journey. Yes. Um, I was brought up in quite a conservative, but very typically South African, Afrikaans stroke English household, where it was all very academic, sports. Mm. And, you know, it, there was no, you know, I never even had a subject like home economics or anything at school. Mm. Um, I led, I went, you know, it was math, science, accountancy, biology, you know, computer science, that, that's it, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, and music was possibly the only thing that was slightly creative. So the journey as a fashion designer was, was difficult. But after, you know, my first year of studying fashion and, um, and winning, you know, the award as the Young Designer of the Year Award, um, all of a sudden, the dynamics changed. Um, my parents became very proud. My mm. mom stood 
a church on a Sunday, speaking about her son that's been in report in Sunday Times. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, that changed a massive amount. And um, so there was a huge support when it came to my mom and my dad with what I was doing. And, you know, the kids, you know, in Sanditon all looked at me, thought I was not weird, just thought I was incredibly brave Mm. to sort of like attack that big world of... um, of creativity and I, Mm. but I've always been somebody that's always, I've always strived for something bigger and better. Mm. And unfortunately um, I'm really good at climbing ladders of success. Mm. Um, Mm. And I'm saying unfortunately, because sometimes that can be unfortunate um, because I don't understand. I was brought up, my mom brought me up and she said, you know what? There's no such word as, as can't. You can do everything. Mm. And so I would set out on a course to achieve things. And, um, of course, um, sometimes I got to that that height, climbing the ladder, and realized when I got there, it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be, and disappointment set in. But it has been amazing, and I love this whole whole this whole journey that I've traveled. I wouldn't change it for anything. And and it is a fantastic journey. And I think you know it's 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 quite often when you when you reach these places, people ask you like, how how did you get there? Like how how did you make it? You know, because that's that's the thing. It's just always in the back of their minds. You know, you said not a lot of people um, make this journey. Not a lot of people get these opportunities. But once they you know see someone that did it, they're like, I I, I really want to do that. That looks like an amazing exactly. journey. And they and they wonder like, how can they get there? And you know, it's it's yeah. a situation of your parents really want you to be successful so if they if they see you doing something when you're young which, which they in their framework don't think can be successful so they might be yeah they might be and, they, and they were always my parents were always just you know my mother was a senior bank manager for first national bank my father was the manager for nestle south africa so you know they were in secure jobs they worked for these companies for 43 years I was embarking on the, and I was probably the generation, the first generation that was going into a world where you literally worked for a company for one year, moved to the next company, then moved to the next company. And that for them was really, I think, scary because all of the factors that they had built into their life, which protected them, which was a pension fund, a retirement annuity policies and everything that they could afford monthly because they knew what they were earning. I was going into a world of not knowing what I was going to earn at the end of the month. And especially being a, um, a creator, being an artist, um, you, you don't know. And we are very driven as artists by wonderful opportunities, but opportunities cost money. So when you start that journey of opportunity, the money comes from the most obvious source, and that's your parents. And that was my mom and my dad. When I presented them with, mom, I'd love to design for this fashion show, but that's going to cost 50,000 rand. Mom and dad would take a loan. They would pay for the fashion show because I would say, this is amazing. This is going to um, present myself to a national audience. I'm going to do more sales. But the reality is you don't sometimes do any sales. Mm. And it's 50 grand down. It's a risk. And then Mm. the next thing 
there's another opportunity and you always believe that the next opportunity is going to be the opportunity where you are actually going to make it. Hmm. But I have always explained this to my students because I'm also a lecturing professor in fashion and I worked out in Malaysia. Um, I was the director of academic development. I started off as the head of the fashion faculty and I would have these parents that would come around and say to me, Eric, I want my son to be a successful fashion designer And I would have to really hold back in saying, how deep is your pockets? Yes. Mm. Because Mm. that is the reality. Very few people are an Alexandra McQueen that go to Central St. Martins in London that whose dad was a taxi driver and he showcased a talent at the age of 16. And, you know, you have Vogue magazine that spots it, um, mm. you know, Isabella Blow, that was the woman that launched him yeah. and writes about this young designer and creates this amazing exposure internationally. And he becomes who he is and gets, you know, grasped, uh, you know, gets um, caught up by a huge fashion house. But mm. that is, that's the tip of the iceberg, yeah. the tip, literally. Yeah. Yeah. There's so um, many so, failures before you get to that point. And I think, you know, that is the reality, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important that you talk about, like, like we said, you know, there's a lot of failures leading up to this, but people are always interested, okay, what was your big break? And then when they go for it, they're like, okay, I need to like talk at this break. The sooner I get this big break, the more successful I'll be. And that's the part that people are interested in. So it's important that you mention that, you know, you actually had quite a few tries and expensive tries uh, before you yeah. got that big break. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of getting that, you said you, you won um, the, there, there, was, there, was, there was the Fashion the designer, designer of the Year Award. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. It was the Young Designer of the Year Award. Mm-hmm. So you won that award. Would you see that as your break, as in meaning going for awards, going for recognition there? Or can it sometimes be like a mention in a popular magazine that can get you your break? I truly believe that the success of my brand has been built on the amount of exposure that I've created for myself. And I use that word created for myself Mm. because I put the energy and the effort into winning things, being recognized by magazines. It wasn't Mm. a situation where they just came and fell into my lap. Um, And even still today, um, I would regard myself as a successful designer um, I managed to get through 25 years of desire, designing, in essence, 50 collections of 160 piece per collection. And I think that's a feat in its own, showcasing at London, Paris and New York Fashion Week. Um, I always say it's easy to design the first collection and have the first concept, but try the continuity on that and try and keep it up and keep it up at a better standard than the last show. Because my mom always said to me, you are as good as the last show. So, you know, when it comes to that break, yes, as when I won that award, the great thing about that was, yes, I was featured in report and Sunday times newspaper. Luck was that the Miss World organization was in in, um, South Africa to host the first Miss World um, beauty pageant held at Sun City. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to design the clothes for our first Black Miss South Africa, Jackie Moffa King. Yes. So when the Miss World organizers, Julia and Eric Morley, who own the pageant, when they approached me, they they saw this 
um, article in the newspaper. They met me at the Miss World with Jackie Moffa King and they asked me, would I then do more for them and become more of a Miss World coordinated designer? So you can see how the puzzle all fits together. Mm. But I am a huge realist when it comes to life and when it comes to success and how you build your business. And as a fashion designer at the time, the, the one thing that I was completely aware of was that I was in London. I had clients walking through my door that could afford to go to Valentino, Versace, mm. Dior. Mm. They could go to any of those people. So I wasn't competing with locals like in South Africa because at the time when I was a designer, we never had imported brands. Mm. So we were competing against each other. And when you were a Miss Essay designer, you were the top of your tree, okay? Mm. Things have changed because now we have imported brands. Right. But in London, you're competing with the big French Italian houses. Mm. So I needed to set myself apart. So mm. I set myself, so all I did was the only way I could set myself apart was to create opportunities. I created the opportunity to do something which would catapult me into the same league as them, as mm. far as publicity was concerned, not mm. as far as their success was concerned, mm. hoping to get to their success. Mm. But when I did a fashion show, for instance, where I was invited to do a show with John Galliano and Alexandra McQueen, huge names, Mm. Of course, again, an opportunity. Could you do the show? I'd love to do the show. It costs money. Mm -hmm. Now we're in London. So I do the show and I think to myself, before I did the show, I said, Eric, tomorrow morning, once that show's finished, they will remember John Galliano. Mm. They will remember Alexandra McQueen. And who was that other designer? Mm. The name would yeah. not resonate the same. Mm. So what did I do? I created an opportunity. I had the showcase. I had the opportunity to showcase my work. But when my collection came out, I had designed the world's most expensive diamond jacket that John Galliano hadn't done, which Alexandra McQueen hadn't done. Yeah. And so the next day in the newspaper, it wasn't Alexandra McQueen. It wasn't John Galliano. It was the world's most expensive diamond jacket created by Eric Way, sold at the National Kidney Research Fund's charity event for a million dollars. So all of my success I created opportunities for myself. And so I even run my, my hair business that way. I've only been in the hair business now for four years. People go, how have you established your brand so quickly? I mean, I'm a national brand. If you speak to anyone in the industry and you ask them about groomed academy or grooming, everyone knows it. Mm. But that's such a short-lived time. It's four years. But what did I do? I entered the competitions. I won them. I'm hairstylist of the year, barber of the year. But it wasn't because I wanted to drive my own ego. I'd have no inclination to be famous, but I have an inclination to make my brand famous. And I needed to find a way how to do that. So I create the opportunity. I do these things. And in, uh, in the reverse psychology of everything, all of a sudden the brand becomes known. But I have to be very careful because sometimes I am the brand. So the value of my business is diminished because how do I sell me? Mm, yeah. So sometimes it couldn't be a sellable brand because I'd have to be sold with the brand. So yeah. that's why when I, when I was in fashion, it was all about me. When clients didn't have an opportunity to see Eric Way for their couture gowns, 
they didn't want to come, even though I had three other designers, they wanted to see me. But when I started Groom Men and Ladies, I made it very clear from the beginning, it will not carry my name, it won't be Eric mm. Way, it will be Groom Men and Ladies, I will have these people that are employed, and I will not cut clients in any of my salons, so that nobody gets to that point where they say, I only want to go to Eric. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They're happy to go to everybody because there's a standard and I say to everybody, you can cut with Alvin, you can yeah. cut with Luke because they are very good because I've employed them and they've trained under me. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's not only starting as the visionary of your new business as, as the, the brand and the motivation building that, but also building the reputation of the business as in if you do something, then everybody that does something with you is of the same quality. Um, but that also brings them up as, as your fellow um, as your fellow groomers, as fellow courtiers, or the people that work under you, um, is, is, is there a journey there that you take them on? You know, you train them, you build them up, or, you know, or, well, or are you just employed really, really, really talented people to start off with? You know what? I like to take people, because I came from a small little town and I created my own opportunity, I want to create opportunities for the same type of person. So I tend not to employ someone who is hugely successful. Mm -hmm. I employ people that are really good at what they do, but haven't had the break. And then I say to them, I'm like Liberace. I'm wearing a huge fur coat. Hold on to the back of it and travel the journey. You're going to see sparkle and it's going to be amazing. But if mm -hmm. you let go, it's your own problem. Okay, yeah. and I always say this to everybody. So when people would come to London, when I had the fashion house, I was really um, very privileged that, you know, huge television production companies like Swellapella Productions, Top Billing, Pasella, Glitterati, um, Carte Blanche, all these people supported me so much as an international, a South African designer, one of two, Mark Bauer, Eric Way, that had left South Africa and kind of carved out a little road of success for themselves. They would come and they would feature me. And so, of course, people would arrive in England and, you know, they'd come to the boutique and they would say to the manager, I'm yet to see Eric because my mother's aunt's sister's cousin's cousins, cousin knows Eric's mother, you mm. know, it was always that type of thing. And they'd walk in there and, you know, Eric, can you help us, you know, mm. because they see the success and they think they can climb onto the train, the moving train. Um, mm. But, you know, um, and, and sort of capitalize on that sense immediately. But I've seen that that's never worked for any of them because my journey, when I left South Africa as a successful fashion designer at 24, I went over to England and I started from scratch. Yeah. I People were writing about me in South Africa, in Heiskenuit, in Report, you know, this designer, he's designed for Ivana Trump. He commutes between London and Monaco in a helicopter. And it used to upset me terribly because I used to think to myself, you know what? I'm living in a studio flat in Fulham. Mm -hmm. I don't have curtains. I'm sleeping under a table on a futon and sewing the dress on top of the table. Mm -hmm. However, yes, I am designing for Ivana Trump. And yes, I am on a helicopter. That's mm -hmm. the journey. It's not my helicopter. I didn't mm -hmm. pay for it. I am just part of the opportunity. So people confuse the success of Eric Way with, oh, it's so easy. And, and, and it's a lifestyle. On, yeah, and let's just jump onto the bandwagon, the gravy train, and we'll just benefit from it. And then what yeah. people do tend to also do is 
they get involved with me. And then after a year, two years, I think they can break free and do their own thing. What people forget when they do that is that when they try and poach the clients, etc., clients are brought into the brand, yeah. not into the person. And mm. I'm the brand. So mm. they fail. It doesn't mm. work for them and they don't understand that. But if that is your mentality, if your mentality is to literally use someone as a stepping stone, which is not a bad thing, but if you abuse it, karma is not great. No, no, it's, it's going to come back and get you. And, and they also, I, I, I like the part where you say that people think that when they see the things that draws the headlines, for example, I, I really liked um, you mentioning saying you had to do something insane to get your name recognized along with the other uh, world famous designers. And then you made the diamond jacket. And so the people like they, they focus on that, um, you know, that, that, that eyeball uh, dragging, the, the, the clickbait almost, you know, and they and think, the, okay, the so iris. this is the life now. Yes. Sorry. And the, the irony about it is that, when people saw the jacket and they read in world news that it was sold for a million dollars, they thought I had the million dollars in my pocket. Yes. You know, this million dollars went to the National Kidney Research Fund. Plus, they didn't realize what was the deal that was struck. The deal was struck with the diamond trading company, De Beers, mm -hmm. that they would help me. They would give me the diamonds to produce the jacket. And when the, if the jacket was to sell, they would take the cost of the diamonds and the profit would go to the National Kidney Research Fund and a, a renal unit was built. For yeah. with, with the profit, but people mm. they're not interested in that, no, they just see the million dollars and they think it's in my pocket, and so and then they want know, to jump on your bandwagon because I mean, yeah. you've got a million dollars in the pocket, and it is a very difficult thing to try and explain to people how to run a business. Mm. Business, I believe, doesn't matter what business it is, what you're doing, what I'm doing, what anyone's doing, is a successful business is because of passion live, breathe, eat, sacrifice, mm. fall down, get up. You know, I was reading yesterday about Elon Musk being mm. the richest man now in the world. Yes. It's insane. This man mm. is tumbled yes. and this guy gets up and he goes, I've got goosebumps when I think about it. Mm. It's just so incredible. And what I love about our nation, South Africans, which sometimes is so heart sore for me, is that we are strength beyond understanding when it comes to a South African that travels overseas, the people want to employ us. We are very hardworking. We are so dedicated. And unfortunately this country is losing the most amazing, amazing, amazing people. People employ us before they employ the Australians because the Australians drink. <laughs> we work and save the money to bring it back to our country. Well, I mean, so, we, yeah. have, we have alcohol ban at the moment, so we can't drink anyways. <laughs> I've got my gin stopped. <laughs> there we go, yeah. No. Um, so it's, it's important that you talk about the ups and downs as well. And, and I just want to know, how does that conversation go? Because if they invite you to do you know, the world uh, fashion design for, 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 for Miss, um, was it Miss World or Miss Universe? The first one they Miss did in South Africa. Miss World, right? They did the first one there. And, you know, they saw you in the report. They saw you in the sun. And they're like, okay, we need to get this fashion designer. And then they start the conversation. And, they, and you talk with, the, uh, with our very first uh, Miss World, uh, which was amazing. And then, you know, the conversation sometimes doesn't go successfully or the dress you designed doesn't go well and how how do you have that conflict situation with the client where they're unsatisfied with what they do or is it a journey along the way which you design with them so they have more than enough input for them to be happy with the product because at some point they'll have to trust you to do your work as well 
Well, remember, um, as a couture designer, it's so different to ready to wear. Ready to wear, we walk into a store, we see what's hanging on a rail, and we purchase it. When you're a couture designer, they have to trust you 100% because they can only see what you put down on paper. So hopefully you can draw nicely. And then they have to believe that that journey that they're going to walk with you will turn into what what you believe you've designed and put on paper and you've basically transferred this into their mind and their dream. And so you have different ways of um, safeguarding yourself throughout this journey. And so basically, you know, when you design the dress, when you design the fabric samples, then it goes into the couture gown that's being made. It all gets made in a plain cotton fabric, which we call a toile. Um, then that toile gets adapted until the client is happy with all the, the entire silhouette. So my gowns, my wedding dresses would take up to a year to make because they end up with a final toile, which is the exact same gown as what they would get made in cotton. Then once they've seen that silhouette, they sign off on it. And when they see the gown the next time, it is the gown completed. There are no fittings in the gown because it's silk. Some of the fabric can be up to 10, 20,000 pounds a meter for the material. So it can't be adjusted. Necklines can't be changed. It's all hand stitched and hand sewn. Mm. That's why the gowns go for, which I've sold for 150,000 pounds, 200,000 pounds, 250,000 pounds because of the type of material and the handwork that goes into it. So you manage your client's expectation. And this is something which has been very difficult for me to try and teach my staff how to manage a client's expectations. If you don't manage your client's expectation, when you're cutting someone's hair or coloring someone's hair and you tell them, they say, yes, you know, I want to have platinum color hair and you go, absolutely not a problem. You do the color and come out and the hair is a pale yellow. Mm. How do you manage that expectation? Mm. So do you then stand around the client with all the other staff and praise it and go, oh, it's amazing. You look fantastic. Right. Oh, my God, it's beautiful. Mm. And you convince the client that actually the yellow is nicer than the platinum. Okay. I don't operate that way. Mm -mm. I give you what I tell you is going to happen. So I always say to my client, this is a journey. If it doesn't turn out right, it will end up right. I will make sure that you will get what you want. So as long as we keep within the boundaries and you don't go and change your, the, change your ideas completely. So you can't start off with a ball gown and then at the end you go, oh gosh, now I preferred a fishtail. No, mm -hmm. that's not happening. Yeah, we yeah. will make the perfect ball gown. So you have got those moments, but I've always managed, and that's why it's so difficult for me with my academy. I do all the training at the Groom Barber Academy I'm very good at picking up on people's energies. I have my mm. students sitting in front of me. I can pick up when a student is feeling down and low, doesn't feel that they're getting the class, doesn't feel that it's maybe worth their money. They don't have to tell me. I can pick it up. And then I can change what I'm doing with them. I can take that student, give them extra time, show them a bit more attention and get them to the point where they go, oh, I am special. Oh, yes, I will be able to manage this. But it's very difficult to teach that to an employee really difficult it's, it's 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 isn't it something that rather you get with experience it's like the more you get to know um the, so my point being is, is that 
when you work as, as as a courtier or you work as a groomer, your the person that you're working with is also part of the artwork. Their personality, what they like to see, what they like to portray, is also something different. So every journey there is unique. And and how how do you approach getting getting their personality, their um, their their uh, appearance uh, to come out with your dress? Well, look. Um... Again, you know, um, when you are part of that jet set, I call it a jet set, which can afford to spend the money that they were spending, um, then it never starts off with the daughter. These are generations of people that have been having couture gowns made. These are women and grandmothers that have been coming to one designer for a lifetime. When they look at a beautiful dress that's been sewn together, they can see that the left-hand side of the dress has been stitched with a yarn that has been woven to the left. The right-hand side has been stitched with a yarn that's been woven to the right. So this is not something that the person, today's modern person even has any idea about. They couldn't no. care how it's sewn together. But these old-fashioned people and their daughters then come with the mothers, and then they have the wedding gown design. They then have the special occasion dresses design. And remember London, it's very different to South Africa. In London, we have, I, I can't tell you how many charity events every night. So these charity events, these women are dressing in one-off gowns. So you're kept busy all the time. You've got bar mitzvahs happening, and it's a special occasion. So all of these things taking place, these, these young girls come with their mothers, and then they are taught because when the mother says to the young girl, to the daughter, you know what, I want Eric to design your wedding dress, the mother has already instilled the confidence into the daughter because the mother's been having her gowns designed for years, and the mother was, her mother's in confidence was instilled by her, the grandmother. Okay, so the process of how the gown gets made is very well understood. Hmm. But to take someone who is brand new, who's never experienced couture, it's a problem. It's hmm. difficult for them to be able to trust and visualize. And then to come up with a concept, because I know the families, because I've designed for them, because I've gone to events and I've understood the lifestyle, because it's all about the lifestyle. I design gowns according to the client's lifestyle, okay? So why are my gowns, why are all my things so glamorous? Because my clients, majority of them live in Mon Monaco. They step off their super yachts. It's glamorous. They're in Portofino. If they're not there in the summer, they're in the Hamptons, and they're living that polo, Cartier, Monaco, Portofino, Paris, London, jet set lifestyle. Yeah. So once you get to know that client because you've been designing them for, for some time, you understand the personality, you then have to understand the venue. Where's the venue? It's not about how much they're spending, but you understand that if it's going to be at the Dorchester Hotel in London on Park Lane, that this is a, and it's a Jewish wedding, for instance, it's mm. kosher, minimum cost, one million pounds. 100%, 300 people in the room, okay? Understand the decor, it's opulent, etc. Mm. So in a room like that, that is so over the top, you need a dress that is so simple. Mm. Yes. <laughs> you can't yeah. have another fairy in a fairy environment. You no, know, you need to stand out entirely. You, you have to. And you must yeah. remember, depending on what and who the client is, the majority of those type of clients 
When it's a wedding, if it's a bar mitzvah, special occasion, it's usually the mother, father who is hosting it. They are the focal point. Yeah. yeah. So you will always design according to that. They will look amazing. The mother of the bride will look insane. The bride will just be another pretty bride. Mm, mm. And if you can get that right and keep that importance right, mm. then you will be assured to have that as a repeat client because they like their ego stroked and yeah. they want to know that you're designing correctly. It doesn't help. There'll be, no, there'll be nothing worse. I can tell you now, if I have a Russian bride and they and I do the wedding and, and, and I don't put the focus on the mother, forget it. Done. Yeah, Never done. happen again for you. But also, it's it's the mother and it's the father who are paying. So you know you have to go totally. for the, the person that has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> and, but it rules. is so. But, but it is so different because in South Africa that wouldn't happen. Because mm. yeah. in South Africa it's about the bride. In mm. South Africa you have the most beautiful wedding in Franchuk, and you have guests that think they can arrive in jeans and an open neck shirt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean. Yes, it's a different culture entirely. Different. Yeah. So how, how, how do you deal with, I mean, uh, having having such a different environment, you know, the Monaco lifestyle, Jet Set lifestyle, these clients that you work with, it has to be incredibly stressful because along with the lifestyle comes the public eye, you know, it, it comes the attention exactly. But you said that you, while you were designing this, while you were flying on the helicopter all the way from, you know, to, to Monaco, you were living in an apartment with no curtains or nothing. Is how do you deal with the, with the stress, the, measure, uh, the, the, the impression that people get out of you, that the public eye's perception? Because you, you already mentioned a couple of things where people they have completely the different, like the wrong perception on what life is like and what, what it is to, to design for these people. Um, so how do you manage that actively? Or well, do you not manage it actively? Oh, uh, you know what? There is a game that you play. Right. Um, the only difference is what's lovely about being in a country like the United Kingdom is that the United Kingdom, um, their um, social set, their aristocracy, the aristocracy particularly, um, are not flash with their money. Mm. So they're not the types that will come and pay with their black American Express cards. Mm. They will have a plain Barclay card. Mm. They will arrive in a black taxi at your boutique. So when it comes to myself and I arrive with a taxi, there's no judgment. Mm. When it comes to your nouveau riche who come with their black Amex cards, who arrive in their phantom Rolls Royces, different story. Yeah, so one of the things is when I arrived in London, I said there's there's two things, and that is even if I ate McDonald's every day of my life, I will have a cleaner. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you have your priorities straight. I grew up with ladies in the house. I needed someone to do my washing. Okay, so that mm. was the first thing. And the second thing is I was going to be this anomaly this person that arrived at an event with a chauffeur-driven vehicle, mm -hmm. black, mm -hmm. blanked out windows, I would arrive and I would leave in this vehicle and people would wonder, who is this? The mystery around it, part yep. of the character. Because they weren't coming to my house. All that mm -hmm. they were seeing is arrival and departure and mm -hmm. how I looked. So it was simple. Thin Eric back then, black velvet, that's all I wore, black velvet, narrow jackets, 
and my black trousers and my black Doc Martens, which I took and fully beaded in Shirovsky crystal, focal <laughs> points. Okay. Right, of course. Mm. So that was it. So this, who's this person that arrives? Okay. And I had one driver, Izzy, that started working for me. And Izzy has stayed with me until today. He's still my driver. Okay. Mm. Mm. I had my beautiful black Mercedes Benz and that was it. I was mm. driven around. Okay. And that created the fantasy that was pretty much what people were buying into, okay? Of course, as life progressed, and I moved from the one bedroom, the studio flat in Fulham, I moved to my next property, which was a one bedroom. And eventually, I had a manor house in the country. And then I mm. entertained everybody that I needed mm. to entertain. Mm. But I wasn't going to be judged on my material goods as far as where I was living, and what I was doing at my house, it was going to be judged purely on arrival, departure, and me. Um, and luckily, being in a country like England, which is not as judgmental as a country like South Africa, mm. in South Africa, I probably look like the poorest person because I have got a habit. I Unfortunately, I've put on lots of weight. I'm trying to lose it. But I, um, so I don't express myself through the clothes that I wear. Mm. So I'm very boring. I go to one shop. I buy 10 blue shirts, 10 black shirts, all exactly the same, 10 blue jeans, 10 black jeans, and I have an array of fabulous different color fallies, which I love, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's what I wear, and people must think I'm wearing the same thing every day. I couldn't care continental. Mm -hmm. doesn't bother me. So I'm used to not caring so much about what people think about me, although it is still very much part of society. People mm -hmm. are like that. But I'm lucky. I've built a career for myself. I've built a profile for myself. If I get invited somewhere and they say, who are you? I say, Eric Way, Google it. Doesn't matter what I wear. It's mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. go. And it's sometimes a bit sad. Yeah, but that, 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 is, that is building a um, a reputation with the celebrities. So the people that you interact with, the, the notable people that came with the, uh, you know, the black uh, American Express card, you have to build that, um, that situation, mm -hmm. the reputation, that environment, the manor house parties, you have to build that uh, when you're in that scenario. But once yeah. you've moved on that, you've had the reputation, you have the portfolio to show people, then you don't really have to care anymore because no. your work speaks for you way Absolutely. more volume. It speaks volumes of you um, more than anything else. Yeah. Of some of those environments, sorry. No, and it's quite interesting that we're having this conversation because I, um, I actually haven't had an interview. I have um, declined all interviews for the last six years. We're on purely it. Because, purely because I haven't really been able to speak to anyone because of the death of my mother. It was very unfortunate. Mm. And, um, and South Africa, as they know me today for the last six years, the people that are around me, are not people that knew anything about my past. Mm. So it's been a very nice journey again this time because I've surrounded myself by people that haven't been affected mm. by what I've done in my past, which has really been great. And um, only at some point I will share where I've been and what I've done and actually that I'm Eric Way, mm. the couture designer, and not Eric mm. Lovemore because Lovemore mm. is my surname, but I've always traded as Eric Way Couture. So people always thought I'm Mr. Way, but mm. my Christian name is Eric Way like Jean-Pierre and my mm. surname is Lovemore. Yeah. So now I'm Eric Lovemore the barber. So mm. <laughs> there's mm. never been a connection, you know, but when yeah. I tell people, they're absolutely astonished and people literally go, oh my God, we're in 
you know, the presence of greatness. And I'm going, no, 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 no. That's not what I wanted, you know. But that was exactly the reason why, because I feel people are affected so quickly by status. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of it almost um, sets a preconception, like a pre set of assumptions about you that just suddenly gets almost, I want to say, runs away with itself. Mm. It's like you suddenly have no more control over it. So how exactly did you move from the celebrities, the courtier life into being a hairstylist? Uh, did you see an opportunity there or, or was it just you needed a new way of life or that it happened six years ago? Um, yes, yeah, so it pretty much happened um, four years ago. Um, so I've only been in this industry for four years. And um, the reason why it all happened was I had, I came on holiday from Malaysia um, to visit my parents in 2014. At the time when I was in Malaysia, I was a director of academic development for a very large campus and um, university group, creative university. Um, so I came on holiday. My mom unfortunately died through negligence of a, um, a medical procedure. Um, and I was left looking after my father. I'm the only son um, and my sister lives in Australia. And so I decided to stay behind to take care of my dad. He went, he went into organ failure, developed dementia, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I felt that was my responsibility as a child who had parents that would do anything for me. I would do this for my dad. And so I stayed behind. For two years, I looked after my dad. I had him in hospital for a year. And once I had him out of hospital, I got him and built him a beautiful retirement home. And then I thought, well, you know what? Sussing out how logistically was my dad going to cope now in South Africa without anyone else's help. He was in a home. And yes, mm. there's help to a certain extent. But who was going to drive dad to the specialist? Who was going to take yeah. dad for his eyes, the teeth, etc.? And I knew and I tried to employ people as a driver. I went to, mm. uh, you know, my best friend's son, who's a farmer. Can Does your son need a little extra job? Drive dad around, pay them. It never worked. It wasn't because South Africa is not set up like that. I didn't have a professional driver that could drive dad around. I had to rely on people and pay them money to do this. So, of course, after about six months of him being in Mapumalanga, I realized this is not going to work. I can't stay in Mapumalanga, God forbid. As much as what I love, Stanerton, um, where I grew up, I was like, you know, it took me three hours to get to Joburg. I had to miss all the potholes. You know, this was ridiculous. So um, I said, okay, I'll stay in South Africa, but I have to stay in the Cape province, in the Western Cape. So I, um, I came down to Cape Town on a little holiday break to a friend of mine who lives in Cape Town. And um, I lay there and I thought, you know what, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep myself busy? Um, Am I going to start doing something in fashion again? Absolutely not. Everybody who knows me in South Africa in the fashion industry was waiting for the flagship store at the waterfront to open. Because that's how I had been profiled all my life as this hugely successful designer. So opening up the flagship store in Porfader was not going to happen. It had to <laughs> yeah. be at the waterfront. Yes. So I wasn't going to be pushed into that. And I decided, you know what, let me change direction, career, and let me go and do something more like a hobby. So barbering had become a huge trend in the UK way before it became a trend in South Africa. And um, I thought, let me open up um, a barbershop. But, you know, once again, true to the way my mother taught me, she always said to me, 
if you are trying to show, uh, if you want to fight with your seamstress because the zip in the dress doesn't look right, you cannot complain unless you can do it yourself. You've got to be able to show her how to do it. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I want to open up a barbershop, but I need to go and study it so I can understand how it all works. I don't just want to be an investor. So the only place at the time yeah. was Stellenbosch where they offered a sitting guilds diploma in barbering. So I went and did it. It also kept my mind going off the whole thing because I was going through a civil court case of my mom's death and everything. So I thought, you know, let me get involved. Let me keep myself busy. So I did my barbering um, diploma. And um, once I had finished the barbering diploma, the idea, because of the way that the course was taught, and I found it very poor and very expensive, I felt, you know what, why don't I, with my knowledge of education, why don't I open up a Barber Academy? But I understood that when I studied, we had 10 students, 20 students in a class. There was no way you could teach someone this skill. It was impossible. One lecture trying to teach someone to be a great hairstylist, and there's 20 people in the room. And they used to train the classes by walking in and saying, just go and YouTube this look and copy it. So I set on a different um, path. I created Groom Barber Academy and I only take in four students at a time and I give them 100% what is needed to be a great barber stroke groomer. So I taught them how to do a nice haircut with a clipper with scissors, how to do the luxury hot towel shaving. And if a guy wants a little bit of highlights or gray coverage and he's there, how to do a bit of color, very simple, exactly what your trade test requires. And after researching what you need to be a qualified barber, well, it was straightforward. I could go and study in someone's garage. As long as I get my trade test, then those are the only papers that count. So I didn't need to do a City and Guilds diploma. I could have been taught, but I could have been mentored by somebody else and then do my trade test and then get what I needed, paperwork. So that's the philosophy behind the academy. I mentor my students. And after that, I send them for their trade test. They get their trade test. And wow, you know what? Today, barbering is in the top of the skill-based job um, opportunities to immigrate to other countries. So it's wonderful. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea. People that are lawyers, people that are accountants, people that were working in the property business that have come to do their trade test in barbering so they could go and live in England or go and live in New Zealand or Australia. So only after I'd opened up the Barber Academy about, a, uh, about two years later, I then decided to open. It was a normal thing to do is to open up my first groomed men barber shop, if you want to call it that. But it, it's, it's a difference because I call my barbers groomers, not barbers. We perform professional services. And I wanted to be able to groom a gent from top to bottom. So everything from nose, ear, brow waxing, full body waxing because sportsmen don't like hair on their body. Um, I wanted to do the teeth whitening, the manicures, the pedicures, but only for men. That was it. So one-stop shop. And um, I started off doing that and started understanding what do men want. And we are so blessed in South Africa, more so than in England. And that's why I feel that our journeys are so incredible because in England, we have barbershops that are run by the Pakistanians, the Moroccans, yeah. et cetera. We have that over here as well. However, our South African Metro Mail, not gay, Metro Mail, 
cares about how he looks today. And today, grooming is a premium service in South Africa for these type of men. They will spend the money on it. They don't have to spend 90 rand. They will have a manicure, a pedicure, because they've been paying fortunes for their wives in the past or their girlfriends. So it's not as if they can't afford it. You just have to get their mindset right to understand they're spending it down themselves. So, yeah, so, so basically, so then... I saw there was a gap in the market with the amount of men that passed through our salon in Somerset West. And I thought, you know what? We should capitalize on that because every single person that saw me would say to me, Eric, but you're a fashion designer. Why don't you do ladies' hair? And of course, I wasn't interested in doing ladies' hair because, you know, I've had 25 years of dealing with women and they've really like, yeah. they've actually made me go mad at times. I used to <laughs> say to my dad, you know, dad, if I was a straight male, I'd be gay by now because these women absolutely drove me crazy. So I didn't want to do women, but I saw the opportunity to introduce females into the salon and I then decided, okay, we'll change it to groom men and ladies. And now we have uni, a unisex salon and it's great. I love it. It's, it's, it's also interesting. I heard the story. Um, one of the people I followed a while back, uh, he lived in London and um, his wife took him to a, a, a nail salon um, called uh, Hammer and Nails. And okay. the entire the entire spiel about it was that it's this it's it's the men's nail salon. Yeah. So they apparently had he described this way where they walked in and they had like half a car hanging from the ceiling and they had you know a punching <laughs> bag there with a picture of Muhammad Ali that he signed. You know, and it was all just about making men um, appreciate themselves and and they and they really tried to like approach this perspective of it quite a lot. But sometimes I feel like what you're describing is that. Men, especially in South Africa, the the, the metro, um, as you called it, um, the, the the I think the actual term is like the metrosexual person, the person that that cares about how they look and how they appear, and those those people that value how they portray themselves is increasing in South Africa, especially in the urban environment. And maybe then in that case, it doesn't necessarily lead to panther as much to the stereotypical male identity. Or, or how do you feel about that exactly? Or how how the clients reacted that that you've chatted to? You know what? I mean, you must remember in this country, um, we, well, I mean, I'm 50 years old. So when I was um, young, I had to go with my dad to the barbershop. And I hated going there because this man was on a little chair around this thing and he cut my hair in a bowl shape. Um, and it wasn't that I was so much concerned about the style of the hair back then. It wasn't about the style for me because it was more about it was just really a chop shop and there was nothing nice about it. So when the unisex salons opened, this was a problem because men wanted to go to the unisex salons, but you know what? They were going to be seen as being a bit too feminine. They could be gay. This is not a great thing. So what was happening mm, is men were a lot booking, of judgment. Yeah. The men were booking their appointments, really the last appointment of the day. So they mm. could slip in through the back door and have mm. the beautiful girl with the big boobs cut his hair. Okay. Yeah. So, and we all felt, you know, I felt subject to that. So mm. of course, um, you know, it was, but eventually unisex salons became okay and men would go there and they'd have the haircut and we became used to that. But the moment when barbering became a huge trend and this whole thing about the man cave, this man yes. experience where, you know, it wasn't about the barber actually. It was about the experience the guy had when he went into his own environment. So when people, when investors approach me, they say, listen, I want to open up a place. Listen, we've got the money. We can make the most amazing man caves. 
unfortunately, mm. we can't have the most amazing barbers. So that's the problem. Mm. Yeah. So money yeah. can buy you the space, the interior, yeah, et cetera, mm. but the barber is the problem. So we still struggle with that. But now the whole thing of trying to take men and for them to experience having a manicure and not the typical way is what he went to the beauty salon where mm. his wife pushed him in to go and have his nails done. You know, he hated that. He didn't like mm. that. Now mm. when a man lies in my chair and I say, can I do your nose hair, wax your nose, he doesn't care too. He's quite happy. Mm. Wax mm. the nose, wax the brows. You know, in heart, he likes the fact that you're making him look better. So mm. it's it's really, it's all about that environment that you put the person in, you know. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, your female clients are exactly the same. A female client doesn't feel great in a barbershop. Mm. She wants to go to the beautiful, the Gary Roms and the magnificent right. places, right. you know. So I think we've got it right in the sense that we've created not the typical barbershop. We have got a very sort of laid back um, concept which men and women feel it's more lifestyle. So when they come to us, they relax, they feel that it is, you know, especially with COVID, that it's run well and that it's safe, but it's where you can have your coffee. It's where you can sit on your phone and do your emails, etc. Mm. The music mm. is lounge, jazz, mm. music. It's mm. very London stroke, Ibiza, if you get the vibe. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's cool as well. I know, for example, um, the barber that we uh, usually hear in Salambosh, uh, it, it's not a grooming salon, that, that one specifically a barber. They're also yeah, trying to create an environment that people actually like to be in. You know, it's not that type of scenario where you're just waiting in the waiting room for the dentist, for example. It, it needs yes. to be an experience. It, why can it not be enjoyable? Yes. And that's yes. that's that's a, that's a, actually a satisfying environment to create because then people enjoy coming to you. They don't want to be the person that slips in the back in the last minute. No. It's, it's actually no. a lot of fun the entire run it and it's, but, is it i'm assuming it's Beatrice, quite difficult sorry sorry Beatrice, when you said in Salambosh, i want to just say to you you will most definitely have to be a guest of mine you and donald and go to my salon at the nielsea because mm. then you will understand the brand and the philosophy mm. I've, I've walked I've walked past there. I was a student in Salabosh, so obviously I walked past okay. the salon a hundred times. So I saw a couple of times. I had a few friends there, but I've never self went there. So don't worry, we'll definitely, I'm gonna we'll definitely do that. You. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Yeah. So I also want to know, you know, is this, I'm assuming this is also a difficult industry to get into, especially as, you know, uh, you said the challenges at the, at the beginning was that people are not used to it. They didn't, you know, have the culture wasn't there for it. And then the culture changed. But now as the culture changed and we're at the forefront of exporting uh, groomers to other parts in the nation, sorry, uh, other parts in the world, you also then have a scenario where it's extremely competitive again. So you perhaps got in at the start, but for anybody else that wants to start now, how do, is, is it the same as your courtier business? They have to completely differentiate themselves or how exactly do you get into it? Well, you know, um, any of our students, when they start their courses, I say to them, what, what, is, what, is, what makes you different from the other barber? Mm. There's a lot of other barbers out there. There's stacks of them now. It's huge competition. Are you going to be the guy that's going to open up a salon a barbershop and you are going to rely on the traffic of the um of the uh your your clients just popping in and they're not regular clients they just literally it's a mall stroke style style barbershop or do you want to have that client that believes in you and comes back to you over and over and over again what sets you apart when you go and do social media what do you do on social media that everyone else is doing that makes you better, you know. Um, 
life has become far more difficult because of social media um, in a in a funny way because social media opens up the world to you, but it opens up the world to everybody. Yes. So yeah. now everyone's competing. And sometimes I've seen people that are really amazing on social media might not be amazing when you go and visit them. They're just really good at putting it out there and how it looks because they're very good on their phone and they can create all the great Instagram posts. So um, it is very competitive. Mm. Um, I do, however, with my academy, because it's a private academy, the majority of the barbers, people that come and study with me are crossing over into a new industry, mm. are people that are investors, um, are people that are just looking for new opportunities. And they generally are people that want to end up opening up their own place. They don't want to go and work in a shopping mall for somebody else. No, okay. No. The reality of it is when you are a barber and you're working for someone else, um, if you're working in a mall, it's seven hours, uh, seven days a week, it's mall hours. Yeah. You've got to cut 20, 30 hits, you know, a day. Yeah. And you're potentially only earning maybe 15 to 20,000 rand a month. I'm a, a huge one when it comes to how much I like my staff to earn um, yep. because I feel as a man that's working as a barber in my company, he's a breadwinner of the family. He's got children. He wants to have a house. He needs to have a car. This is not a man that's working in a salon or a woman that's staying at home with their mom and dad and waiting to marry some rich bloke. Okay. This is someone who needs to work and earn an honest living. So I do everything mm -hmm. in my power for them to do clever cutting. So mm -hmm. maybe to cut 10, 12 people, but to still potentially put 30, 40,000 in their pockets. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is the way I see it. It's not, you know, I, I am very conscious of um, the kind of income that my pe the people need to earn. Um, and so my staff are loyal because of that. So the student that's studying with me also has to be realistic of how much money they are hoping to earn because it is difficult when you open it up. To give you an example, I brought a barber down after lockdown from Bloemfontein, an amazing barber, talented beyond understanding, okay? This young boy arrives here with me. I fly him down and he starts first month, struggles to get clients 2000 rand in his pocket i said to him persevere we're going to make this work five months later december in his pocket 14 grand building it up working dedicated passionate giving yeah. back when someone comes for a cut saying you know what next time you come i'm going to give you 50 percent discount mm. you've got to yeah. know the game you've got mm. to play it well and you've got to build up the client base. We are very lucky with our barbers. We are very active with our marketing mm. and our PR. And mm. I'm in charge of that. And mm. we have our clients that come back because we constantly are stroking their egos and making yeah. them feel good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the business. It's part of the service. It's part that they actually enjoy. And, and I also, I just want to hammer on the point where you said that it's actually important in terms of how much as an employer, how much you pay people, because of people course. think that you can give them, you know, you can give them, you can have them buy into the company culture, you can have them buy into the vision, and then they're passionate about what they do. But there is, unfortunately, a realistic event where they have to spend money at the end of the day on their family, on their kids, on what they do. Absolutely. So you have to pay them to care also. It's like you yeah. can't just pay someone, you can't just convince someone to care and then pay them nothing. You have to both do both. No, it's, it's, no. a, it's a give and take. But, you know, it is also important when you do that. Um, you know, I've learned, I've walked the road from the bottom up. Mm. I never had somebody that paid me a salary. 
Right. I've always been self-employed. So I've had to be the person that earned a thousand pounds a month and a hundred pounds went to McDonald's because it was 99p per burger and the rest went to fabric. So you've got to understand the personality, the person who you're paying, let's say a basic salary to, is that person happy to survive off five grand a month? Or is that person going to take the five grand and turn it to 20? And it's very important because there are people that are really actually happy with five grand, you know, and I can't have people like that working in my business, not because they need to make me rich. It doesn't make me understand how proud they can be for themselves to be happy to still live with the parents or where they are sponging of other people. It doesn't make sense to me because I'm a go-getter. So I need go-getters around me. And if you're not naturally a go-getter, I'm going to turn you into one. But I, yeah, want, yeah, yeah, I yeah. want people to, to be proud about themselves. You know, I like it when my barbers, I've got a habit of I'm a giver. Mm. So when I look at my barbers, I look at my stylists, I'm constantly wanting to buy them <clears throat> gifts. I want to buy them a clipper and I want to buy them. <clears throat> and then I used to do it at times. And then I realized, you know what, that's not a good thing to do. They need to earn it and buy their own clippers. Yeah. And now I've noticed, you know, December came, they worked really hard and the orders came in. Oh, I want that cordless clipper. You know, Eric, I've saved enough now. And now they've got the cordless clipper and they're so happy and they're social media. Look, mm. I've saved, I've bought it eventually. Mm. Different type of person, different personality. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's an investment for them. It's like everything that they build up to us, every tool, every you know, step that they go forwards, it just makes it, you know, it, it, it helps them that stepping stone, you know, shoulder of giants type scenario. I oh, just yeah. have to ask, it, it, it'd be absolutely reminiscent for me to um, ask not to not ask about how lockdown has affected the business because it's something that's completely ravished so many industries. And we had the opportunity to talk to someone, uh, I think it was, I think it was June or so, at the like right in the middle of the worst part of, of the lockdown, which we seem to be heading into again. And they said their business, you know, they completely stopped. It was like stopping in the tracks and you have to start all over again. And now starting it again, you have to have all these extra costs to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable in the environment and you still create that scenario. So how, how have you handled that? And has it, has it, I'm assuming it's affected you massively. Well, you know, um, the thing about COVID is that, you know, I'm quite a realist. So, I get affected by something, but I very quickly become very positive and I take what's negative and I turn it into a positive. So I'm blessed with that. I'm not, I'm not a warrior. I, I worry about making too much money. No, I'm joking. But I'm somebody that constantly cares about people working for me and making sure that they are happy and they can earn a living. I've worked hard in my life. I have created my little my little savings. So COVID in effect, if I was not involved in any businesses, I could ride it. I could eat and I'll be fine. Okay. My tenants would be the only things that I would worry about in my properties. Are they okay? Can they still pay their rent and stuff like that? But I could be okay. But now the problem is I employ so many people and now I've got these people to worry about. So when COVID hit us and we went into lockdown I've instilled into my staff that they should save Mm. their money. 
I have a brilliant accountant mm. and my accountant chats to my staff and he plans with them. So when we went into lockdown, we were very fortunate with the staff because we only had the one salon and, um, and they, they were okay. They could look mm. after themselves. Mm. Um, however, when we opened up again and we looked at the turnover of the previous months to what, where we were again, yes, we were affected badly mm. Mm. And we were down at least 50% on the turnover. I started with all of my incentives um, and specials with my clients because my priority was get a client into the barber's seat, no matter what, because don't let's demotivate the barbers by nobody coming into the salons. At least have someone and get some kind of money. So I slashed the prices from 290 to 140 Rand, okay? a huge amount of money that you're slashing yes but i had my barbers and my sellers very happy because they mm. now had people coming in every day for this amount of money they could mm. because i did a give back to the community um with all of my um with the staff and basically what we said is yes we've been affected by covid but so have you as the public mm. been affected our clients so what we did was we said to the clients you know what you can come and have your service with groomed. Mm. And if you've been affected by COVID, you can ask for up to 50% discount mm. and we'll give it to you. Mm. So that was my give back to our clients. Mm. Okay. Can I tell you the clients were amazing. The clients mm. would come in, there would be a special, the clients would pay the full price. Mm. They didn't want their barbers to suffer. Mm. Mm. So they paid the full price. However, we still suffered you know, there were not so many people coming back. Yeah. Um, but I started getting the people into the chairs. So all of a sudden, it became a little bit of a mystery because people would look at the business and go, gosh, you guys are very busy. You're fully booked. Mm. We were fully booked at half the price. Mm. Mm. So yeah. we were losing. Yes, we, still losing. We, were not, we went at the same turnover. Yeah. We had lost. Yeah. So then yeah. I just, I, I decided, I said, you know what? This is going to be the new, new, new way to go forward. This is where we're at. Let's build it and let's go forward again. And, you know, I was so surprised. You know, people were poaching my staff because people knew how much my staff were earning. People knew my staff had a huge amount of following. So people would actually, other competitors would come in. They'd know my staff members beforehand, you know, even after lockdown. I mean, after lockdown, barbers in my company were earning 25 grand. You know, it's insane. They were still actually doing okay, but they'd cut it from 50 to 25, okay? So yeah. what these competitors were doing is they were coming in and going, you know what? I'll offer you 25,000 basic. And I lost my staff. I started losing my staff. There was nothing I could do. My staff were not being honest with me. They just went to someone else because that was the nature of the beast. And I was left with my one salon here in Somerset West going from a staff complement of 10 to five. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So not only did I slash my prices, I lost half my staff. And I, I thought, you know, I just, I don't know how we're going to ride this one. It wasn't a matter of us going bankrupt. I wasn't sure if it was going to make financial sense to continue. Okay. So I restructured the whole business here in Somerset West. And I got it to a point where the accountant said, okay, this should make sense. And interestingly enough, let me tell you, Beatrice, we operated last year, December, with 10 staff. We operated 
December with five staff. COVID hit us. We did a better turnover than than the year before December. By, by the restructuring, by all the planning that you did, it, it worked the out The whole better. restructuring, the replanning. You know, we, we went where women would pay normally, like for a Brazilian, you know, to straighten their hair. And they would pay usually about 1,500 Rand, 1,800 Rand. I cut that price right down to 400. I said to the staff, you know what, you take the 400, I'll pay for the product, but we'll get them in the chairs. So I invested into it as well. You know, I wasn't making any money out of this whole deal, but my staff were eating and they were happy and they were smiling and they were still making proper money. So, you know, of course we were affected, but I just see it now like going forward. I've acquired another salon in Salonbosch, which was great. I'm helping over there. You know, those people are all earning. That salon in Salonbosch relies 100% on students. There were no students. The yeah, third, you know, we, we took it from no income. Yeah. And I said to I said to the staff, we can't rely on students. We need to rely on the people that live in Salimbosh. So the marketing and the PR that I was doing was really to the locals. Everyone said December is dead. There's nobody there. You're not going to make any money. The whole Nielsi closed down. Nobody's working. Only we were open. We made 10 times more money than what they made last year, December. Yeah. Well, that's uh, fantastic. It's it's, it's, so it's it is, is the remarket the the remarketing, the rebranding, the restructuring, thinking ahead and trying to solve the problem by looking at it in a new way, opportunistic way. Is actually it'll always set you up. You have to just invest for it, and that's what you did with your with your barbers yeah. with your business. Look, the bottom line is, and there's no other word for it, is hard work. Yes, very much. dedication yeah. and hard work, yeah. and live and breathe it. That's the only way you're going to become successful. And you cannot sustain success on a really poor foundation. Build that foundation and you'll know that you will not fall. You Mm. might go through the hardships, but there's something solid under you. And that's why people like the Richard Bransons of this world that have got solid foundations, their buildings are toppling over, they're losing their airlines, et cetera. Mm. But he'll always stand up. Yeah. he will go forward again because he's yeah. laid a really good foundation. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's actually the best possible way I could could have ended this uh, interview. It's, it's such an inspiring word to hear coming from you is also really important. Well, I want to thank you so much for the honor of, of speaking to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I will definitely come by the Nielsen Salon. Don't, don't, don't worry, that one's, that one's definitely happening. I'm looking forward to it. It's so much, it's Excellent. so great to learn from you. Um, we've, we've loved the opportunity to, 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 uh, to chat to you. Thank you so much. Uh, we also want to w- thank the people that watched this all the way to the end. You know, this is an opportunity we had to, t- to chat with Eric Way and discover his uh, passion and, and the hard work that goes into building a world um, like that and changing industries. So we want to thank you for watching. We'll just have to remind everyone that's watching, we have a wonderful rendition of Gloria by the uh, Libertos Choir. Um, we recommend you watch it as well. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, so thank you so much for watching. This has been Worldview. Is the choir with one final song. They take John Legend's glory and we sandwich that between, on the one side, Vivaldi's Gloria, and on the other side, William Steff's The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And to keep it local, we add a little bit of the Libertas flavor through a rap. So sit back and enjoy until we meet again. Have a beautiful evening.
1989, so the story goes, when mixing across race was a big no-no. A dream was born through the help of women that we would be free in harmony. So music became our weapon of choice. We were born with a voice and we had to rejoice as music became our weapon of choice. Asia, Asia, Afrikaans. Die koor is gehaard so my funny begin. Versoening, vrede, onse rede. Muziek en metaal, a vrijheidsbom. Die note bou brug, die woorde laat blom. Muziek maak spasie vir die reenboog. Nasie is ja. Sim, 